ask you this morning to take your Bibles as we prepare our hearts to study the Word of God together, turn in them to our study of the book of Romans. We find ourselves again in Romans chapter 1, and as we study the first section of this book, which really is chapters 1 through 3, if you want to kind of give an overall breaking down of the book itself, chapters 1 through 3 is the first section of that. I, I oftentimes as I'm studying this, liken it to walking through a, a portrait gallery, gallery of, of some of the most grotesque human portraits that you might ever see. Several years ago, my wife and I, and when the kids were younger, we took an opportunity to go down to Washington, D.C. and kind of visit the nation's capital and one of the places that we visited was the National Art Gallery. Obviously from the chuckle, some of you have been there, so you know what I'm talking about. It's really a fascinating place. I'm not big into art and those kinds of things. Some of you are. But it was a fascinating place. It's full of paintings and sculptors or sculptures of, of some of the most famous artists throughout the world. And Although some of what we saw there was not particularly pleasing to the eye, at least for me, a non-artist, I mean, some of it just looked frankly like somebody took paint and threw it on the wall, but it, there was really a sense of beauty in it, in, in all of it, even though some of it wasn't necessarily pleasing. And I was thinking about that, and just simply to say and illustrate that None of what I saw in Washington, D.C. was as grotesque and ugly to look at as the portrait of man that the Holy Spirit paints through the hand of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Mankind himself has chosen by his own determined will. We are talking about the condition, the nature of man, man by his very being. From the very beginning, he has chosen by his own determined will to rebel against God. And the inevitable result is that God is continually pouring out his wrath upon man. His wrath is not seen necessarily in what he actively does. By, by way of his own action upon man. His wrath isn't necessarily seen through where we see some of the things in Scripture as fire coming out of heaven. But rather, his wrath is more often experienced in, in what I like to relate to as a, in a passive kind of way. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean that his wrath is experienced by man through God, no longer restraining man in his wickedness. So that what man has willfully asked for through his rebellion and rejection of God, man is now receiving. Man has asked for certain things by his rejection and he is receiving it. Man's desire is to have life without God. He has shown that by his rebellion to and his rejection of God himself. And so God has given him his desire. The inevitable result is not self-betterment like the world would like to sell, but rather self-destruction. This is what we see in Romans chapter 1. And I, I, I want to begin our time this morning just by reading for us verse 18. We, we've already studied that, but I want to read that verse for us again and then jump all the way down to verse 24 and read from verse 24 to verse 32. You can follow along as I read this. You've heard it, but, but it, we need to hear it again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You remember last Lord's Day as we began to look at this section. And we began to understand the biblical principle that the Apostle Paul is addressing here in this section as an overall principle. And that is the biblical truth of sowing and reaping. You remember, I reminded us of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 in Paul's words to the churches in Galatia. God is not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so, in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians within that book, Paul is addressing the worthless attempt of men to try to gain some kind of relationship with God, some kind of saving relationship through keeping the law, through keeping some set of rules, through, through doing ritualistic activity in order that he might somehow be right with God. No one is justified before God by keeping the rules. No one. That is the definition of legalism. Justification by rule-keeping. That's legalism. Legalism isn't the rules. Legalism is trying to be justified by keeping the rules. And so if you sow legalistic religion in order to gain righteousness, all you will reap is the penalty of the law. The penalty of what God says, and that is eternal death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of Not keeping the whole law and every part is death. Why? Because you've been, you you have to be perfect in your law keeping to be justified by law keeping. Because no one can live perfectly righteous before a holy God according to their own efforts. They will suffer the unforgiving penalty of the law, which is eternal death. In other words, they reap what they sow. This then, as I said last time, is an axiomatic principle. It is widely known in nature that if you plant an apple seed, you can expect to reap an apple tree. You, if you expect to get an orange tree, you're going to be gravely saddened. So this principle is true not only in the physical world, it is also true in the spiritual world. Just as God is not mocked in the physical world in that He the the seed produces something of its kind, so too he is not going to be mocked in the spiritual world. God has designed and ordered everything, including our relationship with our Creator. We heard it this morning, even during our announcements, we were created for worship. God has created us as humanity so that we might bring honor to Him and 
thank him for what he has done. And yet man, in his rebellion against his creator, as Paul clearly states in Romans chapter 1, he has chosen not to acknowledge God, and he has chosen not to honor God, and so man is reaping the very fruit of that rebellion against God. Listen to what Paul says again in verses 24 to 32. I'll just highlight the reality. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Worship the creature rather than the creator. And because of that, God gave them over, verse 28, to degrading passions. And they, in their own persons, are receiving the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that now the outflow of their entire life is wickedness in every kind of imaginable way. So as a result of the perverted thinking and practice of men, Paul says God gave them over. God gave them over. In other words, this is God's answer to man's suppression of the truth. You want to know what God thinks of man suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? Here it is. This is God's answer. This is the inevitable fruit of man's willful sowing of rebellion. God has released man to himself. He has released him to the devastating consequences that are the fruit of his rebellion. You cannot escape it. So three times here in this passage, Paul states for us that man has exchanged. And three times we hear God say he was given over. And then three times you see the, the picture, at, you get the inevitable results, if you will, of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and its consequences. Verse 23, they exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. And so God gave them over. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so God gives them over. Verse 28, they refuse to have God in their knowledge, and so God gives them over. Nothing could be worse, nothing could be more frightening for all of humanity. Nothing could be more frightening for all of us than to be judiciously abandoned by our Creator. Three times we hear God's answer to man's rebellion. And his answer is, okay, have it your way. Okay, have it your way. Your lusts produce impure living. Your rebellion against me produces a qualitative state of degrading passions for your entire life. And your refusal to have me as God bears all the fruit of a totally depraved mind. Go ahead, have it your way. The fruit of the sown seed is utterly rotten through and through. And man is reaping the fruit of being unconstrained by God. And verses 24 to 32 portrays for us just what that fruit looks like. It's not a pretty picture. Man has been given over to himself. And it's here that we see the fruit of that, and we see his fruit through these three areas. I gave them to us last time. The core of his sinfulness, the character of his sinfulness, and the coverage of his sinfulness. Paul paints for us an ugly picture of the consequences, and we dare not miss it as we study this. In fact, if any of us go away from this text and still believe that in some way man in his very nature is somehow inherently good, you need to wake up and listen. You're still sleeping. And we began to look last time at this, so 
we can just suffice it to say that the very core of man's rebellion is his own strong desire which leads him toward everything that is ungodly. It isn't that God created him that way. Man was created incorrupt. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were incorrupt before they fell in sin. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that everything God created wasn't just good. It was very good. It was very good. God did not create corruption. We know corruption because we do corrupt things. Adam and Eve were created in incorruption, and man in his unconfirmed holiness or his unconfirmed incorruption there in Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And all of us in them, being humanity in that one place, and the floodgates of the lustful heart opened up within so that every form of impurity became now the norm. Why? Because man chose to exchange what God had naturally created him for. You say, what was that? Worship. Man exchanged what God had naturally created him for and began to live the lie. Verse 25 clearly says that. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped. And serve the creature rather than the creator. The lie that man chose to live was idolatry. All that comes with idolatry. Because man was made for worship. You and I were created to worship. We were made so that we might worship our creator forever. Man chose to buy and to own the lie instead and began to worship self. Began to worship his own mind, his own thoughts. In fact, he professed to be wise in his own mind and he exchanged in his wisdom the glory of the incorruptible God for that, the image of what was corruptible. Because of that sowing, Exchanged what was natural for that which was unnatural. Exchanged the worship of God, which is natural for creation. All of the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. All of other nature other than humanity itself declares and does exactly what God has created them for except for humanity. Humanity does what is so unnatural. We worship the creation rather than worship God. And the creation we worship most is ourself. Therefore, because man has chosen to worship the corruptible rather than the incorruptible, God gives him over to the full range of the consequences of that choice. But the very core of man's sinfulness is a life-size portrait of himself. Loves it that way. And so God has handed him over to that end. And some of the consequences of ignoring God as God is bodily suffering. Bodily suffering. We see that in our natural world through all kinds of sickness, through all kinds of disease. I mean, in the garden before the fall, there was no sickness, there was no disease. When, when paradise is restored again, when Christ comes and restores again, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no disease. And yet, throughout the natural world now, we see that. Sickness and disease has no social boundaries. It has no national boundaries. Sickness and disease goes everywhere. In spite of all the scientific advances that man has made to ward off sickness and disease, the fact remains, whatever man sows, he reaps. 
And so this is the very core. The core of man's sinfulness is this worship of self. But secondly, since man has been given over to self, we see the very character of his sinfulness at play. Notice verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. You can stop right there. Because this is now the second time in just a few short verses in which the Spirit of God through Paul tells us that mankind has been, in fact, given over. He has been released to self by God. God has removed his restraint. And just like the therefore in verse 24, where it says, therefore he gave them over, Paul now gives us a reason for that. He says, it's for this very reason. What reason? The reason is verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over. Man has rejected the truth and accepted the lie. Man, by his nature, has rejected the true God or worship of a false God of his own making. So that now, by his very life, now the very character of his sinfulness is reflected through his lustful desire for each other in the most base sexual ways. The Bible here calls these lustful desires degrading passions. This is a qualitative state. In other words, this is the state of the human heart, not necessarily the activity of every human. This is the state of the human heart. And these degrading passions are described here through the illustration and practice of the perversion of homosexuality. Which is both an abomination to the Lord and the most degrading and shameful of all sinful passions. Now I was thinking through this and I know we have younger ears and I want to try to be very careful here and be as G-rated as I can be. Paul says their sinfulness is characterized in this way. Verse 26. Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. So here again, we ought to be riveted in our thinking concerning the idea of natural versus unnatural. It's natural for us to worship God and yet it's unnatural for us to worship the creature, and yet that's what we do. There's a natural versus unnatural kind of reality, and here we see it again. The point concerning the expression of these degrading sinful passions is that homosexuality, or for that matter, any sexual sin outside the confines of marriage, is not and has never been part of God's natural design. He does not create individuals against His perfect design. We live in a world today that is wrought with all this idea that people were created in a certain way. Oh, they were created that way in their sinfulness. Oh, they were created that way in their expression of whatever sexuality they want. So that what is happening by way of homosexuality within humanity is not individuals created in such a way The Bible says they weren't created that way. Homosexuality is the natural expression of their life of sinfulness. No one is born that way. It is the outworking of their willful rejection of the truth of God for a lie. This is the ultimate exercise of self-worship. Just self-worship. Man, in his desire to turn away from God's truth, to suppress the truth of God in all of its ways, and his unrighteousness to turn away, he reaps the consequences of the only thing left. And the consequences of the only thing left is life lived unnaturally. 
homosexuality is the illicit and unnatural expression of that which is God-given and natural. It is the expression of degrading passion. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says, for their women exchange the natural for the unnatural. This is not only a section of humanity. In other words, Paul's not listing out this general category of, of women total in totality, the idea there in which it's all women. No, he's saying females in particular rather than women as a whole gender. There are those within each gender, as we see, who express this degrading passion in this way. So he's saying females, because of the rejection of the truth of God, have exchanged God's design in relationships for that which is unnatural and against God's design. And verse 27 clearly says, and men have done the same thing. In the same way also, men have abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men. Once again, he's not speaking of all men. He's speaking of males in particular. Not everybody expresses their degrading passions through the sin of homosexuality. And it's interesting, by the way, just as a side note, in the Greek language or in the Greek world in which Paul lived, in which Paul was writing this, the words man and woman, when it was used in any kind of societal context, carried with it a certain respect, a certain dignity. When you use those titles, it was a dignity. So Paul, in, in essence, is simply using these words of the Holy Spirit's having Paul use these words. And Paul is saying the dignity of what God had created in man and women was obliterated by these degrading passions. Both in the female realm and in the male realm, Paul says they abandoned the natural for the unnatural. Very good word to use. Verse 27, abandoned. Great word. It's not a mistake that God uses that word here. Listen, you cannot abandon something you do not have. Think about that. The homosexual culture, the homosexual movement, the, the gender confusion ideas and all these kinds of things would like to say that that they were always that way. No, you haven't. You have abandoned your natural function. You cannot abandon something you did not have. If you were born that way, then why would it say you abandoned it? If it was natural, it wouldn't have been abandoned. Or it wouldn't be abandonment if you were like that by nature. But in order to get to this degrading passion, the natural needs to be abandoned. In other words, there is a burning in the heart for each other, just as it says. And there is no greater example of that in Scripture than in Genesis chapter 19 in the whole reality of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we don't need to turn there. You can study that more in your own time. But suffice it to say that those ancient people were, were so corrupt and so morally perverse in their expression of this degrading passion that even the name Sodom, has become a synonym and a word to describe every form of sexual deviation known to man. Just the word itself. And even though there seems today to be plenty of evidence within the judicial system across the country and in the world for the destructiveness of this kind of behavior to both the, the one involved but also to many people, Sadly, 
many people, including large numbers of those in social service professions, continue to persist in maintaining that homosexuality is neither unnatural nor harmful. Some even go as far as to say that attempt to convert anyone who lives that way is just unethical. In fact, it is growing increasingly more and more in our day to even speak against it is now being considered hate speech. There's nothing more loving that can happen than to speak with a sinner about their sin that separates them from God. And if that isn't shocking enough, many church denominations today are actually ordaining the sexually deviant to the ministry. Even establishing whole congregations for those who have willfully chosen to exercise their sin in that way. You don't have to go very far. Just drive four miles that way. And you will find open and affirming places. The sad part is any attempt to justify homosexuality is not only a wicked endeavor, in fact, deserving the full wrath of God, but in the end, it is futile. Because both the Old and New Testaments condemn it in the strongest terms. You have to deny God. You have to deny the Scriptures to get there at all. Under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel, anyone who practiced that was punishable by immediate death. Of course, we're not advocating someone be put immediately to death if they practice their sin in that way. Why? Because in the New Testament, just as any other sin, this sin can be forgiven, this sin can be cleansed. But also, just as any other sin, no unrepentant sinner will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. See, sometimes we think, oh, that sin's worse than all the others. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. They all separate you from God. They all are deserving of eternal death. It doesn't matter whether you're a fornicator, so that, that is, having relations outside of marriage in a heterosexual kind of way. You're a fornicator before God. You're not practicing any kind of profession if you profess to be Christ. You're, you have no credible testimony. In fact, your testimony is a blaspheme to God and a blaspheme to the church. It doesn't matter if you're an adulterer. It doesn't matter if you're a man who, who wants to be like a woman, effeminate, or a thief, or a drunkard, or someone whose mouth gets you, gets you in trouble all the time as a reviler. and a swindler. It doesn't matter. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if that is your practice of life. And come following on those very words of the Apostle Paul are the most glorious words that we hear in Scripture. Because Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. The sin that separates us from God can be cleansed. Don't be deceived, Paul says. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can violate that which is natural for the unnatural and have a relationship with God. It's futile to think that way. God will not be mocked. To do that is to make God a liar and to love what God hates. So the character of man's sinfulness is seen through the degrading passions known to man. Every degrading passion, particularly the sin of homosexuality. 
Paul says part of the fruit of that seed is what we read in verse 27. The same way men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving. Here's the, here's the reaping. And receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You see, there is a reaping that comes with degrading passions. There is a reaping that comes with every sin. Homosexuality is an abomination to God. And because it goes against God's natural design, because it goes against the very way in which you were created, the consequence is that it reaps the fruit of God's judgment. What is it? What is that judgment? The judgment upon the exercise of these degrading passions is the physical destruction of yourself. Just as sin has its consequences, sin is not isolated to the individual acting out some sinful passion, so too the destructive effects of this exercise is far-reaching. Sinful expressions affect not just the sinning one, but others as well. When you sin, when I sin, when we choose to sin, it's not just us that's affected. There are others affected as well. Truly makes for a sad commentary on mankind, doesn't it? This is the nature of men. What could have been in a world free from blemish, what could have been was marred by the willful sin of man through the fall. What could have been such a pretty portrait was now an ugly, grotesque portrait. And despite of a new beginning after the flood, despite of the fact that God killed all humanity minus eight people in the flood, despite that, the the rotten, sown seed of sin soon brought forth its fruit. The downward spiral has continued throughout all of history. We are just in the line. We're just like a wheel gaining speed going down the hill. Our spiral goes faster and faster the longer it goes. The outcome is self-destruction. That which is unnatural brings its own reward. And in our time, sexually transmitted diseases are a graphic reminder to mankind of God's warning. It's a graphic reminder to us. What you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. So the core of man's sinfulness is the worship of self within his very being. The character of his sinfulness is clearly seen through the degrading passions being lived out amongst each other. third characteristic here. God gave man over to a totally depraved mind. A totally depraved mind. And Paul shows us the results of this through the coverage of man's sinfulness. The coverage of his sinfulness. Verses 28 through 32. There's no way with all of these that we're going to get through them today. So I just want to introduce it to us. We'll pick up next time we're together. But for the third time here in these verses, because of the deliberate choice of man, he has been abandoned by God. He has been given over. Paul says, Because fallen mankind did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. The ungodliness of the world is accompanied by the depth of sin. 
When man says, I don't want to acknowledge God, there is an immediate reaction to that reality, and it is a depth of sin that goes everywhere. Verse 18, Paul said that God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness. And the ungodliness that Paul is speaking about is the refusal to let the thought of the perfect God rule over your life. That's the reality. That's the ungodliness reality. Literally, what Paul is saying here in verse 28 is because... They did not think it as valuable to retain God as the distinct object of their knowledge. That's the reality of what he's saying. That's the literal. Because mankind did not think it as valuable to retain God as the distinct object of his knowledge. In other words... To retain God as the distinct object of our knowledge is to keep alive within our mind and within our heart the correct biblical view of God. And when you have the correct biblical view of God, and that is the thing that's ruling your mind and ruling your heart, His will is the very thing that gives you direction in life. Because man has suppressed the truth and said, I don't want to know you, God. God gives you over to that kind of depraved mind. And you no longer are acknowledging God of any value. He's not the distinct object of your knowledge. This is the very thing that the world does not consider of any value, God. He's just a thing. If I need Him, great. He's my cosmic Santa Claus. If I ask for something, boy, he better answer me. He better give it to me. He better drag me out of this problem I'm in. I mean, after all, if I have an issue, God better be there for me or else. The net result of rejecting God is a mind that fails every test. A depraved That's what the word depraved means, something that cannot stand up to the test. A mind, a heart, a nature, a reality, our very being that cannot stand up to the test. It's an utter failure in every way. Listen, God is not in the business of self-esteem, is He? If you want self-esteem, go to the foolish psychologists of our day. But if you want to know who you really are by way of what your Creator says about you, then read what God says about you. This is not self-esteem. You can't pass the test on your own. So Paul begins to show that failure in the following verses. How does that failure manifest itself? gives us a list of multiple ways in which it manifests itself. It's not an exhaustive list, but it certainly is a list that all of us are in. None of us could wiggle out before Jesus Christ. We're not going to get into those this morning, but we're going to save them for next time. But, but I do want to ask this question. What's the answer to all of this? I mean, why does God allow man to go to such depths in his sinfulness and rejection. Why does God allow that? You know, the only answer to that question is grace. You say, what? What are you talking about, grace? I've been reading recently the book of Ezekiel. Prophet Ezekiel is sent to the nation of Israel to share with them their sinfulness. And over and over and over and over and over again through Ezekiel's prophecy, you hear God say to them, go to the rebellious people and tell them about their sin. Tell them, tell them the depths of their sin. Tell them about the rejection of me. I'm holding them accountable. Wrath is coming upon them so that they might know that I am the Lord. God allows it because when sin runs rampant, 
then despair and wickedness are widespread. And when despair and wickedness are widespread, then men and women, both male and female, begin to realize their need for a Savior. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You see, it's into the darkness and sinful despair of the world that came the great light, right? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. His righteousness is the righteousness we need. Because he is the righteousness from God. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For in it, what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Who's the righteous? Jesus Christ. We need him. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. By nature? This is who we are. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of your works so that no one can boast. Jesus Christ came into our sinful, dark world that we, by faith, might one day be with Him in His sinless, bright heaven. That's the only answer for those caught in the lust of degrading passions, isn't it? It's not to shun them. It's not to push them off. It's not to say, oh, well, listen, we don't want to have anything to do with you. The reality is anyone caught in any kind of sin, anyone caught in any degrading passion is to hear the gospel. We need the gospel. We need to desperately hear the gospel. The answer is the gospel. We have to share that with all people matter what their sin practice is. And we'll get one next time. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard to read about judgment. It's hard to speak about it knowing that we were under the same judgment of you know that our life was worthless, undeserving of any kind of grace and mercy from you. Maybe some of us even had those thoughts. Whatever our sinful passion and desires were, maybe it was even in this way. Maybe we certainly know friends, some of us even family who exercise their sin in this way. Try to continue to suppress it, thinking, believing the lie that they were created that way. None of us were created that way. Your creation was created for worship, and we are called to worship you, not self. Without your gracious hand of mercy, and without your sovereign hand of crushing grace upon Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Ah, there's many here have heard it. They've heard it time and time again. People who come 
people who've heard the truth, heard the gospel, children who have grown up in families who have heard the gospel over and over and over and over again, who choose to serve self, choose to live lives of sinfulness, worshiping themselves. Oh, sure, they're not going to say they're worshiping self, but that's the reality. We know what your word says. We know the truth, and every human knows the truth. So we pray that you would crush the heart of men, that you would shower upon them the truth of the gospel, that each one of us would be a preacher of the word, that we would go and share the gospel with friends and family, even if that means they would separate from us, for we love them. We want them to know you, the only hope, the only Savior. Lord God, use us. Help us not hold these words in some kind of judgmental fashion as if we've arrived somewhere and they're at a lower place than us. Lord, let us see the grace and mercy of your saving truth in Jesus Christ that drew us out of sin. And were it not for grace, we'd be there too. Forgive us for the sin that we continue to do even though we do know Christ. Your grace for advantage. Forgive us that we, in many ways, are even worse because we embrace the truth and still foolishly sin. Lord, help us by your Spirit to not do that, not blaspheme your name, not cause a stain upon your church. Help us to repent as we are calling others to repent. Without repentance, there is no hope. Lord, we trust you in this. We ask your blessing upon us in this. We ask you to crush the hearts of the proud that they too might come to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.